According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs chapter 12. Looking at verses 12, 13, and 14. Maybe even get to verse 15. And then... uh, after that, we'll have 16 through 22 and 23 through 28. So uh, about halfway through the chapter. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to prepare our soul to receive the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning. Thank you for brothers and sisters that are able to make it out on a Wednesday morning and receive the uh, the blessing of this Proverbs class. Father, uh, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding to uh, teach us the practical wisdom that we need on a daily basis. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we're looking at this, I'm going to pull our slide up. This is point eight in the outline, looking at verses 12, 13, and 14. One of these buttons here. Using food gathering metaphors. And uh, we have nets and we have uh, snares uh, and we, yet we also have roots. And so there's a couple of different ways you can obtain food. You can uh, snag it with a net or you can farm it. You can put roots down and produce it uh, the slow way. <laughs> and uh, there's the quick way and there's the slow way. There's a way that takes away from somebody else and there's a way that takes away from nobody because it's being produced and grown from the earth. And uh, we have the different contrasts here. So uh, we're using food gathering metaphors, but really the passage is not speaking to food. It's speaking to the conduct, personal conduct of wicked versus the righteous. It speaks to our attitude with respect to thou shalt not steal uh, what is ours and what is not ours, and what is the plan of God for production? Because God is a worker, and in God's plan for work, it includes production, and it includes producing something that was not there before, and taking a, a natural resource and and building upon it, or shaping it, or molding it, or transforming it, or changing it, uh, but taking uh, raw material and fashioning it into something new is a means of production. And it is God's means of production whereby we increase the value of something. And uh, so some of these principles come across and beyond just farming and beyond food production to larger spheres of economics, to, to spheres that relate to wealth and production. And what is wealth? What's the difference between money and wealth? And what is the, the purpose of an increase? And why do we work towards an increase? So there's a lot of themes that come out of this and we're kind of really just introducing some things on a, on a very basic level but expect that down the road these concepts are going to come back over and over and over again. They really do become significant developments in Proverbs. In the, the, uh, the, the personal and public wisdom section that we're in here from chapter 10 to chapter 24. So uh, in dealing with this then, again, the wicked man desires the booty of evil men. And we understand booty, plunder, right? Loot. 
something that uh, the, the pirate has made off with. And, uh, and, uh, and so uh, you have no honor among thieves. You end up with uh, the, the, the quick and easy way to, to steal something is to steal it from somebody else who stole it. And uh, that's what they're doing here. A wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields or yields fruit. And so the righteous is not looking to steal from somebody else. He's serving the Lord and he's putting down roots and he's waiting patiently and, and uh, he's enduring. And the book of James speaks of this, about the endurance and waiting patiently for the early and the later rains. And, uh, and what does it take to bear the harvest? You notice when you plant a seed, you're not uh, going to grow a crop that afternoon. There's going to be a delay. There's going to be time. And uh, from roots to shoots to fruits, we have a, a process, okay? And it takes time. And then uh, different things that you would then do with the fruit in, uh, in different ways. I, I prefer my fruit, um, you know, blended into a, a milkshake of some flavor, you know? I like strawberry milkshakes or or a uh, Dairy Queen Blizzard. You can put some fruit there. Um, there's other things you can do with fruit. A good apple pie is always nice with the crust and the cinnamon and the cheese and different things. All right. The point is, though, we ta- we're taking material and we're transforming it into something uh, more profitable, something more worthwhile, something more expensive because of the labor that we put into transforming it for what it is. You know, an apple tree is sitting out there in the field and you can look at it, but uh, it's, it's more, uh, it has greater value when you actually harvest the apples off of that tree. The, the value of an apple that's been harvested is far better than an apple that's still sitting up there. You've got to climb up there and get it. Okay? And so this is what we're talking about when we're talking about fruit in production. It goes on to say in verse 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. So beyond the issues of, of verse 12, and there's doctrine there, then it builds on that in verse 13. Beyond uh, what verse 12 is talking about is that uh, you got this net you're using to, to capture all your plunder, and you find yourself in that net more often than not. <laughs> that if you're, if you're using wicked methodology, look out. Because uh, that net catches you. And um, whereas... If you're operating in the integrity of your soul and the righteousness of the Word of God, um, you don't go into those kind of nets. You're not even playing with fire. Why play with it? See, when this is a verse I think that underlies much of my, I very frequently will come up to different folks and say, hey, are you staying out of trouble? Right? And uh, don't be insulted if I ask you that because I ask everybody that. And uh, the, I, ask, I ask church members, family members, you know, friends, enemies, everybody. I just, it's, it's uh, to me, it's a more creative thing than just the stupid how are you question that I don't really care about anyway, nobody does. So just, hey, are you staying out of trouble? And, and it sparks thought. Well, what do you mean out of trouble? Because let me tell you, there's all kinds of trouble. We're living in a fallen world in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And sin is crouching at the door. His desire is for you. So there's tons of trouble to get into, and I hope you're staying out of it. And uh, it's kind of a friendly way to say, remind you, are you walking in the light? And things like that. So in verse 13, there's the uh, snare and there's the rescue. And then verse 14, uh, the idea of satisfaction. A man will be satisfied with the good of the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. And this is the verse, by the way, that's not a contrast. This is not a, 
an A statement with a but and a B statement. This is an A statement with an and and a B statement that, that builds on the and statement. So it's not adversarial, it's, it's uh, synthetic in its parallelism because uh, both sides of verse 14 are positive. Both sides are talking about you and I walking in the Word of God and it's all good at that point as uh, we deal with it there. So last week I spent a lot of time dealing with this, how wickedness traps and seizes but righteousness puts down roots so as to yield and supply. And there's a big difference, all right? Um, and then the mental attitude here in trapping and seizing. Trapping and seizing. And, in, um, and I hope we understand the bigger picture on this. We're not talking about methodology. We're not talking about uh, the fact that there are legitimate fishing methods that use, that use nets, and we get that. Jesus employed them. And uh, there's a, in fact, more often than not, the net is what a commercial fisherman is going to use. As opposed, only once did did he ever cast a hook on a line. Uh, he told Peter to go cast a hook on a line and and caught a fish. That was to pay the taxes with. Um, that's the only time there was ever a hook and line type of fishing in the Gospels. Most of the fishing in the Gospels is with nets with uh, fleets of, of fishing boats working together in concert uh, to uh, to operate these nets. And so we're not saying that nets as a method are wrong. Don't, don't confuse the metaphor with the doctrine, okay? Because what's being contrasted here is the attitude, and a, an attitude of trap and seize uh, coming from this, this wicked heart that's looking to score plunder from somebody else. That's the attitude, and it's wrong. And the idea that, uh, that uh, you can make a quick buck and, and somebody else gets hurt, oh well, uh, that's not what we're, we're here to do. That's what the world promotes. The dog-eat-dog approach of, of corporate USA or the, the uh, step on somebody to, to get higher up on the ladder. Um, the, the world is great with that because it, it totally lines up with cosmos uh, wisdom, <laughs> cosmos philosophy. Uh, if you have to hurt somebody else to get ahead, well, hey, it's every man for himself. Go get it. And uh, that's what we see here with desiring the booty of evil men. And um, we want no part of that. So wickedness traps and seizes. And, and in that mentality, you are taking away from somebody else so that you can have. That's why thou shalt not steal defies uh, the will of God. Taking away from somebody else against their will and uh, keeping it for yourself, that's not his plan, that's not his design. And, um, you know, that's not the win-win as is the, the free exchange when I voluntarily give you something that you want and you voluntarily give me something that I want. And then on that voluntary basis, you are operating in your free will, I'm operating in my free will, and it's a win-win because when we walk away from that encounter, I have gained in my estimation, I have gained. And in your estimation, you have gained. And each party walks away from that exchange richer with a, with a, a greater accumulation of value. Alright? So that's uh, the contrast there. The root of the righteous yields fruit. So uh, putting down roots so as to yield. And, and the idea of a yield is a, is a, is a harvest, is a, is a production is a benefit, is a yield, and uh, some yields are better than other yields, obviously, and um, aspects there. But when we do harvest, when we do receive the yield, what do we do with it? 
We're not misers. We're not hoarding it. The, the, the point of having a yield is that we are then ready to share. We don't need to be plundered because we're freely giving. We're freely serving. We're freely benefiting one another in the body of Christ or our family members or our community and, and so forth. And so the idea of yielding uh, contains within it the uh, principle of supply. So that's uh, verse 12. Um, this unrighteous gain is no gain at all. There is no profit to this kind of profit. Uh, and many Proverbs speak to that. I crossed off Roman, uh, Proverbs 1-9 last week, but it is Proverbs 18 and 19, uh, 19 there in chapter 1. Along with Proverbs 10, verses 2 and 3, and Proverbs 11, verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. I need to remember to change that, make that edit. Whereas roots and fruits, these are God's program for production and generosity. God has, de- has designed it this way and specifically designed it this way. You and I need to learn as humans in the plan of God, you and I need to learn um, what's called in economic terms, it's called delayed gratification. We need to learn that it's not all quick and easy and it's not all here and now. All right? That God gave a promise to Adam and Eve when He kicked them out of the garden that, uh, that uh, the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Right? He gives a prophecy of the birth of Christ at least 4,000 years early. <laughs> Probably up to... I don't know if you have the Septuagint dating, you could push it back to, to 5700 BC, BC for Adam and Eve, all right? I know the 4004 date that got famous with, the, with Usher and his dating system, and it's in the Schofield Reference Bible, so it has to be true that uh, Adam and Eve was 4000 BC, but I, I'm, I'm more comfortable with 5700 BC and using the Septuagint dating on that. In any event, it's still thousands of years ahead of time. God did not, and when, when she gave birth to a son and she said, behold, I've acquired a man-child of the Lord, uh, Eve has all the expectations that this seed of the woman is, is right here in her hands. That Cain is the Christ. That this is the answer to their sin issues in, uh, in that. No. <laughs> That's only one generation. It's going to be 60 or more between, uh, between uh, Adam and, and Jesus. So the idea of uh, fruits, the idea of putting down roots, of growing a crop, of having a tender shoot, and a tender shoot that has to be cared for, has to be provided for, the the idea of slow growth, the idea of fruit bearing, and then tending the adult plant so that it can bear even more fruit for the lifespan of that that, uh, plant. God designed agriculture to teach us these principles. That, that, uh, that the plan of God centers on this. This is how He operates. This is how we should operate. And so uh, aspects there. Psalm 1-3 speaks about being firmly rooted in uh, that strong tree instead of the desert scrub bush. Uh, Isaiah 27-3, Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. And, it, and it, it, seriously, this is the, the plan of God and it goes uh, from generation to generation. Are we building upon what the previous generation stored and saved up, and are we building, are we leaving uh, a, a deposit for our children to take for their inheritance, for them to build upon, to, to, uh, to store and to build up? Or are we simply living in the 21st century American consumer existence, which is just make the money, spend the money, and make more tomorrow? 
and spend more tomorrow. And everything is all about the now. Everything is all about the instantaneous now and, uh, and the things there. Okay? Three-minute popcorn and one-minute oatmeal and 10-second uh, Pop-Tarts and whatever else. I mean, we get such, uh, uh, you can tell I microwave a lot, right? Um, <laughs> but we, we want it here, we want it now. I want to make an order on Amazon, and if I make it early enough, I can have it by, uh, by 5 p.m. It'll be at my house. And uh, same day, same day now. Isn't that great? And uh, almost good enough. I'm waiting for the drones to come now and drop it on my porch within 30 minutes or less. That would be even better. Okay, but we're getting there. Eventually we'll have Star Trek transporter beams. You just click on what you want and they'll beam it right to your house. All right. And then I'll complain. Well, why do I have to click? I should just think it. All right. So, it's uh, that's not God's plan. God's plan is put down roots. Tend those roots. When the shoot comes up, tend that shoot. Okay? And they teach. Jesus himself was the tender shoot. Remember? That's why he was born of a virgin. That's why he had the, the childhood and the, the lessons there that, that we learn and, and the blessings to be able to, uh, to teach this doctrine and to relate to this doctrine. All right. When we talk about ensnaring or relieving, to be trapped or to be rescued, um, much of it centers on our words. And uh, words are either ensnaring or relieving. And we ran out of time last week as we were looking at these verses. Um, but the contrast there, um, in the first, in the A part of verse 13, it, the verbal activity is being ensnared. In the B part of verse 13, uh, the activity is escaping. All right? And you're escaping from trouble because you're, you're not even playing with it. You're not even approaching it. And, uh, of course, it's the evil man in the first part of the verse. It's the righteous in the second part of the verse. And uh, it's lips, okay? The transgression of his lips in verse 13. And so it centers on words. It centers on the things that you say. And uh, what the wicked man says versus what the righteous man says. And, and uh, the B part does not have the parallel of lips or uh, speaking, but I think it's implied. It's a part of the poetry. It's understood as a part of the contrast. But to be fair, the, this, the B part of the verse does not have lips or words or anything, the tongue or anything addressed there. And, and uh, it's not necessary to have it there. In terms of righteousness, uh, of course, the righteous with righteous thinking, with righteous being, with righteous speaking, with righteous living, uh, doesn't have the, the, the snares that the, the wicked has. The wicked and his big fat mouth gets him in trouble more often than not. And uh, even when uh, God is giving them the opportunity to confess and the opportunity to come clean. And this is what we see again and again throughout the Old Testament when God desires confession, uh, that's what He's looking for. The excuses are not confession. And every time you come up with an excuse instead of a confession, you're condemning yourself. That every excuse is condemning. And so as we saw this, we took them slightly out of order. We started with Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4, and I think I even threw an extra one in there with uh, Sarah who laughed and denied laughing, right? In uh, Genesis 18, the Lord says, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. Oh yeah, you did. You know, don't lie to the judge of the universe who knows all these things. 
2 Kings 5, Gehazi was lying about his manipulations there and, and, and Elisha caught him on it. And, and so the penalty is uh, he, he was a leper for the end of his days and his children, his household was struck with this uh, uh, you know, congenital, uh, congenital genetic leprosy that passing from father to son to the whole household there. All right. Uh, we ran out of time though before we had a chance to get to 2 Samuel 12 and I want to pick it up there, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And um, I might have teased it a little bit, but the full details of 2 Samuel 12 are, are worth spending some time with. Because David was literally at a razor's edge away from the sin and the death. And uh, that's, that's clear in verse 13. Anything else out of his mouth and, and he would have been struck down. Um, but to lead up to that, because that's that's really the the crescendo of the of the text there in verse thirteen, as <clears throat> David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." Why didn't Adam say that? <laughs> you know, the the angel of the Lord came in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, uh, and uh, where are you? Adam should have just come right out and said, "I have sinned against the Lord," instead of this, "Ooh, well, I was naked, so I hid myself," kind of a thing. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin, you shall not die. Just like that. That's, he was right there on the edge. Anything else other than I have sinned against the Lord and uh, David would have been struck down. Alright, we would have had a different line of Christ besides, because uh, Solomon's not born yet. Alright, we would have had a different line of Christ besides the one we have now. Um, notice though, verse 14, however because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Alright, there are consequences to our actions. And even when we confess sin, even when we're back in fellowship, I recommend that. Keep short accounts. 1 John 1.9, the minute you're convicted. Absolutely. But rebound is not a get out of jail free card. Confession of sin does not wipe everything. Yes, we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. Absolutely. But we're not absolved from all consequences. There are consequences. And if we have given the enemies of the Lord occasion to blaspheme, we magnify those consequences. All right? And if you are in a position of responsibility, if you're a pastor, if you're a husband, if you're a father, oh wait, I got all three. If you are <laughs> whatever, if you have a position of responsibility whereby your role is supposed to glorify Christ and instead you're denigrating Christ? You're not portraying Christ in the church, you're portraying something ugly? You're not shepherding your flock? Woe to the faithless shepherds. Okay? Then the consequences. And here's David. A prophet, a king, a type of Christ, the author of how much scripture? You bet his accountability is high. And so because you've given occasion, so the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Well, it's not the kid's fault. What did the kid do wrong? Nothing. It's not his fault. But he pays the price for David's darkness. And this, is, this happens. The, the, uh, the pastor goes off the rails, the church suffers, the, the, the wife suffers, the children suffer. They, they face the consequences for the, the uh, rebellion. Now, backing up a bit, because there's more to it in this chapter, the principle is actually illustrated repeatedly throughout this chapter. 
words are either ensnaring or relieving. And every excuse is condemning. Everything out of David's mouth in this chapter is condemning. Even uh, as this uh, parable is given, as Nathan comes and starts to deliver this, um, this allegory, um, so the Lord sent Nathan, back up to verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one was rich, the other poor. Okay, this is it's like Jesus coming to preach this, right? He's given a parable. And the rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. Okay? I mean, you couldn't have a more extreme picture than this. And uh, this, this man's got nothing except this one little ewe lamb. And that's his. That's his only possession. And uh, he bought it. Free exchange is his. He has complete ownership. And he nourished it, tended it, grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. So we got the story. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling. See, no one will have time of day for the poor man, but the rich man, yeah, you can schmooze and conduct business and stay there and all that. But the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd, even though he had many. He had abundant, many flocks, many herds. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb. Okay? This is like seizing with a net. This is like the, the booty. Uh, just You got plenty, but that doesn't matter. And uh, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So that's what he's going to cook for dinner. That's what he's going to serve the, the traveler. And uh, I mean, it's a hideous story. So you read in verse 5, David's anger burned. Burned greatly against the man. Well, yeah. You tell a story like that? But guess what? What's the real story here? This is David. Okay? Bathsheba's the little ewe lamb. Uriah is the poor man. And uh, David, he's got all kinds of wives and concubines and slaves and whatever else. That wasn't enough. All right, so David's anger burned greatly against the man. And so if you, if you get angry at a fictional story, <laughs> you know, if you're reading a book and you, and you get so angry at this character, I mean, well, what's happening? Okay, Probably a well-told story. I mean, if they can get the emotions whipped up like that, I've seen movies like that. There's a villain by the end of the movie, you desperately want that villain dead. Okay, Because of the way the story is told. So David's anger burned. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Right there. Those are his words. And he's correct. The man who has done this deserves to die. Under Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. Murder is punishable by death. David did both. He is double guilty. Committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? Scripture calls it adultery, wasn't rape. Committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he committed murder against Uriah. And he is worthy of death twice over. And moreover than that, there is no, there's nothing in Leviticus that can save him. <laughs> there is no sin offering, guilt offering, there is nothing. Mosaic law cannot help him. All right. 
And so out of his mouth, out of his own mouth, the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and has had no compassion. Now in the parable, stealing does have a a thing of, of restitution that is possible. You steal, you can return with multiplied consequences. You know, there's penalties, threefold or fourfold or sevenfold. There's different passages of Scripture depending on what you're dealing with. But adultery, there's no recompense for adultery. Proverbs 5 says you cannot make recompense for adultery. The, the, uh, the uh, husband, the one that's been violated, cannot, uh, he won't be satisfied. There's no recompense. And uh, likewise, murder, there's no recompense for murder. It's, it's life for a life. By man, his blood must be shed. That satisfies the judgment of God. So there is no recompense. So he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and has had no compassion. So Nathan says to David, you are the man. And this is when the trap is sprung and and, uh, everything David says has just condemned him. He's worthy of death. So thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Everything that God has done, every step along the way from you know, our, the day of our salvation to every step along the way in ministry to everything that God's ever done. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. Yeah, he inherited the royal harem when he became king. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. See, I think David stopped asking. David stopped serving God. David got complacent with, well, that's good enough. And uh, stopped serving God and uh, started serving himself. When you do that, you lose the real contentment. We'll talk about that in verse 15. All right, or maybe verse 16. It's coming up. Um, verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. Murder. He arranged the murder. And you've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with a sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. And notice, not just for his life, but for his posterity, for the generations after him. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So uh, this is the, uh, the application here. All right, so words are either ensnaring or they're relieving. Um, we are bound by what we say. We will give an account, we're told. Every careless word will come into account on the Day of Judgment. There's a lot of other passages we could address to this. Also, I think, we have a principle in the angelic realm. There is an angelic standard, and it's coming up in Hebrews 2.2. Let's get a tease on this. Hebrews 2.2. There is a common way this verse gets taught, and then there's the way I was taught it, and the way I'm going to teach it, um, with the word spoken through angels. Hebrews 2.2. And... uh, We'll do, we've got a lot of work to do on angels in chapter 1, and then we'll get to chapter 2 where we'll do even more work on angels. All the way down through verse, uh, the end of chapter 2, both the first two chapters are totally about angels. And it's not until chapter 3 that we get introduced to Moses and his faithfulness in all his house, 
And we have the contrast between Jesus and Moses that begins in chapter 3 and we start to get uh, Moses and then Joshua and, and, and that. Um, but in Hebrews 2, 2 it's, uh, verse 1 says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We have heard, we've been given a message and we are accountable. We're accountable to live it, we're accountable to apply it, we cannot drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And we discussed this in the introduction to the book. This is the, the denial of apostolic status. The author says he's not an apostle. He heard it from the apostles. Uh, the Lord delivered the message. The apostles confirmed the message. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Alright, so that's the context. That's what we're dealing with here in verses 1-4. through four. And We're going to get to that in our Hebrew study and I think there's, there's some powerful content there in this, uh, in this section. Uh, dealing with accountability for the word that's been given. And if you neglect it, if you drift away from it, if you neglect it, there's accountability. There, is con- there are consequences. There's judgment that follows. Now specifically, highlighting now the angels, the angelic standard in verse 2. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. The word spoken through angels proved fixed, eternal, unalterable. It's fascinating vocabulary. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So what are we talking about there? What is that? What is the word spoken through angels? Alright. Um, and we'll teach it. There's, uh, there's a common way that is taught which I think is flawed. Okay. Um, the common way this Todd uh, goes ahead to chapters 3 and 4 and anticipates the contrast with Moses and the contrast with Joshua and the Exodus experience. And so they, they say the word spoken through angels, well that was, that was Israel when they were given the law. Okay? And uh, that uh, when God gave the law to Moses at Sinai that there were angels there making a lot of thunder and lightning and noise and scaring everybody to death and there were angels there. Um, and and there, uh, Acts 7 talks about angels at Sinai and Galatians 2 talks about angels at Sinai. And so it's not, it's not wrong to say that Mosaic law was given as ordained by the angels. Okay? Because Galatians says the law as ordained by angels. You who receive the law as ordained by angels, do you neglect the law? Okay, um, so that's that's legitimate in Acts seven and in Galatians two. That's legitimate. I don't think though it's legitimate to to inject Mount Sinai into Hebrews two two, because that's looking forward to chapter three and four and bringing a future principle, uh, taking it out of its context and trying to force it into a context here. No, the context here is all angelic. So what was the word spoken by angels then that proved unalterable? What was the word spoken through angels then that uh, carried with it consequences of judgment? See, I think it points back to the angelic stewardship, to the angelic dispensation. 
to the original fall when a third of the angels went after Satan and two-thirds of the angels stayed faithful to the Lord. And they delivered their word. See, in, in some kind of fashion, there was some kind of an event that locked in those angels to where they are now. Had to have been, because there's no, no provision for Satan to get saved today. And there's no danger that Gabriel's going to fall tomorrow. Okay? All the elect angels are elect angels, and they're locked into their eternal estate. What we call, um, remember when I introduced you to that vocabulary called angelity past and humanity present? Okay? You and I are still creatures of time, bound by time. We're still in our humanity present. We're looking forward to eternity future. Well, angels, in a sense, are already in their eternity future. They're already locked in. The elect angels are eternally locked in. The fallen angels are eternally locked in. So when did that happen? And that concept is, is completely harmonious with Hebrews 2.2. 2. That uh, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. See? And every transgression and disobedience resulted in judgment. So anyway, stay tuned. That uh, I think is a better understanding of Hebrews 2.2 than to damage the text by bringing in later information and forcing it into an earlier context. All right, beyond that, verse 14. Let me get back to Proverbs 12 and let's look at verse 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words. Was there any satisfaction with the the wicked guy? <laughs> you know, the guy that was stealing booty from somebody else's net. And there's no satisfaction in that. All there is is fear. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. And so we have words and deeds for the righteous. Words and deeds. For the righteous, words and deeds are satisfactory and accumulative. I'll tell you what I mean by that here in a moment. For the righteous, words and deeds are satisfactory and accumulative. Sin is not. Sin is dissatisfying and passing. It does not accumulate. The passing pleasures of sin. They come and go. But for the righteous, words and deeds are satisfactory and accumulative. The satisfaction and return, this too is characteristic of God Himself. We'll illustrate this as well. God Himself in the execution of His perfect will. So a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his word. Same with God. God's satisfied. Everything that He's done, He looks at and says it's good. And the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. What's the return about? So we have satisfaction in the A part and we have return in the B part. And uh, this, we combine these together. This is the, the synthetic parallelism here. These are both true of the, of the righteous man. The wicked man is nowhere near this verse. It's all about the righteous. And uh, we have both words and deeds. There's words in the A part and deeds in the B part. And so um, that's why I rephrased it, combining all the components of the poetry into a, into a statement. 
for the righteous. Words and deeds are satisfactory and accumulative. In other words, there is a return, there is a possession, and even eternal possession. Um, so what are we talking about? Something that he's not regretting. Words that are, uh, that are fruitful, words that are edifying, words that are a blessing, and uh, the satisfaction that comes with that. Okay? The, uh, the blessing to be serving God in that, communi- in that capacity as a communicator. It's a blessing. And there's satisfaction with that by the fruit of His words. Thinking about it. The, the blessings, you know, um, do you ever feel like uh, you're trying to help somebody and you wish there was more that you could do but you just seem like there's almost nothing you can do? And so you just kind of throw your hands up and say, well, sorry, wish there was more I could do but I can pray for you. Oh, is that all? <laughs> Gee, that's all you can do is pray, huh? Or you offer some words. You offer some words of encouragement. You share a passage. You share a, a word of encouragement. You offer a, a, a whatever, right? And maybe uh, you offer, uh, like this morning, we were talking about different things, and, uh, and you're talking to a brother about something they're going through, and then that reminds you of something from years ago, and you say, well, you know what? Here's how the Lord blessed me. And you share a, 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 a story. You share a, a, an encouragement. And, and, and what's that? Those are just words. But is there power in those words? Is there fruit that gets born? Does God work through that? Let me tell you something. Absolutely. That's why God designed it the way that He did. That's why, uh, you know, he, that's why He created everything with words to teach us how powerful our words are. He could have just thought it in the beginning, you know, and God thought, let there be light, and there was light. No. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Demonstrating for us the power of our words and what it is that we generate as we speak and how um, accountable we are. Okay, You notice if you back up a little bit, uh, the book started with this. Proverbs 1 these principles were given way back in chapter 1, way back in parental wisdom. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. You want satisfaction? It comes in the will of God. The kind of satisfaction you think you're going to get in your wisdom as a wicked person? No. That's not going to come. There's no true satisfaction. You might be satiated, (laughs) right? A glutton can be full. A drunkard could could be, uh, you know happy, quote-unquote. Uh, he could be flat-out hilarious in his, in his, uh, <laughs> in his drunkenness, in, a, in an alcohol-induced uh, humor, okay? and which no one else finds funny, but the, but the drunk guy does. Okay? Um, but where is there, is there, where's the true joy? The true joy comes in the Word of God, comes in the will of God, comes through the righteous. See, same thing with satisfaction. And uh, 
everyone that's pursuing happiness, that frantic inveterate search for happiness, do they ever find it? Do they ever get that satisfaction? Even when they accumulate what it is that they wanted, even when they've, they've sacrificed everything to get what they've wanted and, and they finally get it, is there true satisfaction in that? No. And scripture describes this over and over and over again. Uh, Proverbs 31, 31, at the end of the book. And there's satisfaction and, and return, by the way. Satisfaction and return both. Satisfaction and return both. See, this has to be so much bigger and more sanctified than just what goes around and comes around, right? This is, the, the world kind of has that as a kind of a karma or a fate or kind of a, a human viewpoint, satanic viewpoint of things. God says no, what, what, what returns to you is what you have sown in that you sow what you reap and when you're walking in righteousness and serving appropriately that yes, this is a return. And that includes the satisfaction, the contentment, the, the blessings of that return. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. It ends the, the passage here for the virtuous woman. It ends the, the, the chapter and it ends the book. This is the conclusion of Proverbs here. Give her the product of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. Satisfaction and return right there. Value. Think about it. Our, our, our culture has, feminism has so devastated um, the value for how many women are trying to find worth in the, in the workplace, trying to find value in competition against men, trying to find, you know, and, and failing to apply the wisdom that God has designed. Because they're told over and over and over again there's no value in being a wife, no value in being a mother, no value in raising children. And over and over and over again, and yet what do the scriptures say? She's got amazing value. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There is value in this, in, in, in glorifying Christ through this, this uh, role. Give her the product of her hands, let her works praise her in the gates. And so there is satisfaction, there is the accumulation of that return, and that's the blessing. And you see, this is how God operates. Satisfaction and return is characteristic of God Himself in the execution of His perfect will. You know when He sends His word, does it return void? What's Isaiah 55, 11 say? So will my word be which goes forth from my voice, from my mouth. It will not return to me void, but it will accomplish. Isaiah 55, 11. And it's interesting too, as this, uh, as Isaiah records this, what, what's the the metaphor, right? The imagery that he employs is rain, farmer, crops. It's not instantaneous. Have it now. So um, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Whatever darkness you're in, get out of it. Confess, repent, come back to God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts as your thoughts. 
4. Here's the explanation. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven. Wow. We're talking seasons. Year, you know. There's a rainy season, there's the snowy season. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. See, what do we see there? Again, time goes by. There's a process, there's a cycle. There's the, of course, there's the water cycle, there's the agricultural cycle, there's seeds, there's sprouting. Do we eat the seeds? No, we don't eat the seeds. The seeds grow a crop. You get a cereal crop, you get a, a grain, you've got wheat or, or barley or whatever you got. And, uh, and, then, and, the, and then what do you do with the, with the wheat? You just pluck it out of the ground and start chomping on it? No, you're going to grind it, you're going to bake it, you're going you're gonna, to, um, you know, you add the yeast, you ferment it, or not. Uh, you're making the bread, okay? You put in whatever your flavorings are, your seasoning, whatever you're going to do. You're adding components. You're working. It's a lot tastier than just eating seeds, okay? Furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, okay? Seeds are for sowing, bread is for eating, at least in my book. All right. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, you will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. He's got a purpose for all that he says, a purpose for all that he does. And it may not be short term. It's going to encompass the Alpha to Omega overview of the plan of God. That's how he works. That's how he operates. He expects us to operate on a similar basis. So I enjoy that. Backing up to... Um, I mean, there's more. It goes down through verses 12 and 13. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy over you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Looking forward to that day. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. It will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. All the blessings Israel has to look forward to in their coming kingdom. All right, back up to the chapter 53. You know, the idea of satisfaction is how God operates. The satisfaction and the return is how God operates. We teach it, theologically we teach it, it's the doctrine of propitiation. We teach that Christ is our propitiation, that the Father is satisfied. The idea of satisfaction, to me, it's foundational to the whole Bible. It's foundational to how God operates, to how God was not satisfied with Cain's sacrifice. He was satisfied with Abel's sacrifice. Why? Because appointed to the ultimate sacrifice he will be satisfied with. Satisfaction. And, and, and how much of, of sin is, is simply the expression of dissatisfaction? Satan wasn't satisfied. Adam wasn't satisfied. You and I aren't satisfied. So we go carnal to try to satisfy ourselves. So verse 10, Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He was pleased. Didn't like it, but it was pleasing in the plan of God to accomplish his good pleasure. God the Father was pleased to crush God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
The father was pleased and the son was also pleased. The son voluntarily was on board with the plan and the program. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ has to submit to the suffering for the blessings to come from the Father. If he rebels, he's not receiving these blessings. Then notice, as a result of the anguish of his soul, the victory Jesus had at Gethsemane, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. This is the the passage that defines for us why propitiation is propitiation. Why the Father was satisfied with the work Jesus accomplished at the cross. He was accomplished at the cross. The Father was satisfied because the Son the Son had come to learn the necessity of this. Okay, That it's by His knowledge. As a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. Until Gethsemane, Jesus was not qualified for Golgotha. Until Gethsemane. Until Jesus totally comprehended the price to be paid and submitted to it. Then and only then did the Father say, alright, I will accept what you do at Golgotha. Until then, the Father was not prepared to accept Golgotha until Jesus has His victory at Gethsemane. He has to to understand, appreciate, accept, surrender in totality to what this suffering is going to be about. And so as a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied by His knowledge by His knowledge, until Jesus learns what that suffering was going to be, the Father was not willing to accept it. Okay? You know, you can say anything. You can come right out and say, ooh, I'll go with you, Lord. Oh, I'm willing to die for you. Yeah, right. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the, before the rooster crows. You can say all kinds of things until you know See, the son can say he's willing to go to the cross. But until his victory at Gethsemane, the father would not be satisfied with the son just saying he's going to do it. He's got to know. He's got to fully accept the wrath. So by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. See, until he, until he knows this, until he is literally the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Until the, the victory of Gethsemane, he is not qualified to be the justifier. And so there it is. It's a powerful doctrine. But it centers on, notice, what does it center on? Satisfaction and return. Because <laughs> the Father's going to be satisfied, and what, what, what's the return? Not only does he get his son back, Many sons. He brings many sons to glory. Jesus says, I will praise you among my brethren while he's hanging on the cross and lamenting, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet he goes on to say, I will praise you in the midst, among my brethren in the midst of the assembly. There is a satisfaction and there is a return in what our Savior accomplished on our behalf. 
All right, we'll come back next week and we'll move on to verse 15 because we've got to talk about the know-it-all. The know-it-all is a fool. Everybody needs counsel. But the know-it-all, the way of a fool, is right in his own eyes. But the wise man is he who listens to counsel. He's humble enough to know that he doesn't know it all. He's humble enough to know that what he doesn't know, he needs to go to the, go to the one who does. And, uh, and so we obtain counsel. And uh, we don't just pursue what's right in our own eyes. And there's a lot of Proverbs that address that as well. All right. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this class. And I pray you continue to uh, bless these studies and bless the uh, students that uh, avail themselves of this material. Bless each one of us, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.